It's time for mystery. Mystery Radio. If you're looking for murder, I know a guy who can get it for you wholesale. This is another in the adventures of America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, Johnny Dollar, starring Charles Russell. At insurance investigations, Johnny Dollar is only an expert. At making out his expense account, he's an absolute genius. Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to West Coast Underwriters, San Francisco Branch, Attention Bradford L. Coates, General Manager. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during my investigation of uh, the little man who wasn't all there, or in most cases, there at all, or the unpaid premium payoff. Expense account item one. Three cents postage due on your airmail special delivery letter containing said assignment. I can just hear you dictating it. Take a letter. To Johnny Dollar, you'll find his address in the files. Dear sir, better make that dear Dollar. Enclosed find copies of letters received by us from one Mr. James Yarbo, period. This man's wife was insured with our company until recently. One day before her death, her period of grace and an unpaid premium ran out. We canceled her policy in the amount of $20,000. Her husband, Yabo, first made every effort to collect, then threatened us. Since then, we've received the enclosed series of letters intimating, without confessing, that he's had a hand in the accidental death of at least 12 of our policyholders to date. The police have been working on it, but are getting nowhere. If you are available, please come immediately. Uh, uh, yours very truly, uh, so far. Expense account, item two, $176.87. Airfare, Hartford to San Francisco. Item three, 540. Cab fare, airport to your office. Dollar, glad you got him. You've no idea what okay, a mess is holding. Okay, okay, Mr. Coates, okay, don't get excited. We'll nail this guy before you run out of policyholders. Well, the dozen he's apparently done away with already have cost this darn near quarter of a million. You've got to move fast, Dollar. The man is a homicidal maniac. Yeah, but a smart one, though. He's put just enough in those letters to, he sent you to let you know that he's working on a grand-scale revenge against your company. But he leaves out just enough so the law can't lock him up. He's had perfect alibis in every case. Uh, look, uh, Mr. Coates, tell me, have all these deaths been local right around here? No, they've been all over California. Mm-hmm. Well, one other thing, the method. From this list you gave me, Mr. Yarbo seems to have a preference for killing people through the noisy and gory method of fake automobile accidents. Yes, very true. But what about this last one? Airplane crash. That was a $30,000 loss to us. Uh, just think. Our poor, innocent policyholder flying around and then his engine quit. Thanks to a man he's never even seen. Tell me, Mr. Coates, <sighs> just how difficult would it be to get a list of your California policyholders? Names and addresses, you know. Why, that would take days. But goodness gracious, man, you can't hope to keep an eye on them all. Besides, the minute you went off the job, he'd strike again. That's a preposterous Whoa, idea. Cut time. Look, I don't want the list. I was just wondering how Yarbo got it. Oh. Now, so far you've given me nothing to go on. I'd like you to add two things to that. 
Yarbo's home address and a $50,000 life insurance policy made out to me. What on earth is that for? Well, look, in the first place, if we're going fishing for Mr. Yarbo, I might as well be the worm. In the second place, if I should get gobbled up in the line of duty, that $50,000 life insurance would make several attractive young ladies of my acquaintance very happy. Not, mind you, as happy as I can make them by remaining alive. Expense account, item four. $30. Rental of limousine complete with chauffeur. I figured if I was riding the trouble, I was riding in style. So I started on a house-to-house survey. You might say, knocking at death's door. What is it, please? Oh, uh, I'm sorry to bother you, Mrs. Chianelli, but I'm from the insurance company. Oh, yes. It'll only take a moment. One question about your son. Oh, poor Angelo. What do you want to know about my poor son? He'd drive away in his automobile, that's all. I'll never see him in life again. Yes, I, I know. Uh, tell me, Mrs. Chianelli, did you ever hear your son mention a man named Yarbo? Yarbo? Yeah. Yarbo. I don't know about no such Yarbo. Now, please. Please leave me. There was so much sadness in my house. Yes? Uh, Mr. Dykes? Yes. I'm sorry to bother you, but I'm from the insurance company. About your son's plane crash. Oh. I thought all those details had been taken care of. But just one thing, Mr. Dykes. Did your son ever mention a man named Yarbo? Yarbo? Yeah. That's an unusual name. I'm sure if he had, I would have remembered. Okay, sir. I'm sorry to bother you. And thanks. <laughs> Yes, sir. May I help you? Yes, I'd like to have a word with Mrs. Weatherly. I'm from the insurance company. Well, sir, Mrs. Weatherly has been indisposed, not receiving visitors. What is it, Brian? Uh, how do you do, Mrs. Weatherly? My name is Johnny Dollar. Oh, dear, dear. You may go, Brian. Oh, I'm ashamed to let you see me in this condition, Mr. Dollar. I'm just ashamed. But you understand. I, I do indeed. Oh, it was bad enough. The accident, I mean. But the scandal! Oh, oh, I'll never be able to hold my head up again. Yes, uh, no. If Harvey had to get himself in an automobile accident, why, oh, why, I ask you, did he have to have that awful Mrs. Barclay in the car? Hmm? Oh, yes, yes, it was very unthoughtful of him, yes. uh, Mrs. Weatherly. Would you mind answering one question? Well, if I can. Did your husband ever mention a man named Yarbo? Well, no. No, he never mentioned a man named Yarbo. But neither did he ever mention Mrs. Barclay. I tried a half a dozen of the other beneficiaries left behind by Mr. Yarbo's list of victims. All I got out of it was a very watery afternoon. The tears were falling like monsoon time in Burma. But of information, I got none. This brought me right smack up to a point I didn't want to have to reach. The point of contacting Mr. Yarbo in person.
At 8.30 that night, I took a plan on Yarbo's house on Lombard Street. At 11.30, I saw the lights go out, as did Yarbo. He was a little guy, stooped over like he was looking for cigarette butts on the sidewalk, needing a haircut, and through to type, wearing a long black overcoat. But worst of all was the little satchel he was carrying. Items like this always set off a chain reaction in my imagination, and I could just see him on his way to atomizing the Oakland Bay Bridge, thus causing the biggest automobile accident in history. I very cleverly forced my way into the house by breaking a first-floor window, reaching in and opening same. Cyclops' eye of my flashlight started picking up information on the subject of Mr. Yarbo immediately. The room I had entered looked like the hobby lobby of an English bobby, a crime museum if I ever saw one. On one wall, a gun case. On another, a crime library. And scattered around the room, a grisly collection, ranging from blood-stained hatchets to shrunken heads. But the most surprising criminal curio of all stood right behind me. <laughs> Mr. Yarbo, complete with little black bag. Well, well, I must say, the current second story man dresses well, but I must also say you, my man, must have the old masters of the art turning in their graves. For you, young man, are a heavy-fingered bungler. Sure, let's have a better look at you. Now, that flashlight, I'll feel better after you've dropped it. Hey, what am I doing? You're not even pointing a gun at me. Don't feel too comfortable, you are well covered from many points. A step from you in any direction may detonate any number of explosive devices. Uh, why did I have to pick this joint to burgle? I feel like a city councilman playing a call in the White House. You seem more the kind of a guy I should be working for instead of on. What's your racket? Racket? Yeah. You were in a racket, my little friend. My pastime is a science. Yes, I, I take it you are impressed with my collection. Uh, uh, who, who wouldn't be? Well... If you're interested, come here. Uh, about those booby traps. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Note well the design of the rug. The large roses. Avoid stepping on them for the time being. Oh, great. And I was in here stumbling around in the dark. May your good luck continue. But look, look here in this case, the small vial on the right. That was purloined for me to order from the famous Black Museum in Scotland Yard. That little vial once rested in the case of the fabulous murderer, Dr. Crippen. And there, beside it, that lock of hair, mm -hmm. that is from the head of the second victim of the noted mass murderer, Neil Cream. And up there, look up there, the hangman's noose over the mantle, from that one swung the body of the notorious Western bad woman, Fanny Turner. Oh, uh, how's chances for running this place for Halloween? Well... Well, all right, then, since you no longer seem interested in playing the part of a bungling burglar, then I assume that I am also free to discontinue my pose as a victim of your disguise, Mr. Johnny Dollar. Oh. Ah, looks like the chips are down and I'm the fish. Yes, and there are a lot of other fish in your sea, Mr. Dollar. Poison eels, that's what you are, the lot of you. Parasites gambling on death and then not paid when you lose. Uh, listen, Mr. Yarbo, you're placing a big hunk of blame where it doesn't belong. You're confused about things. Confused? Yes. When your wife's insurance premium was overdue, you were allowed a 30-day period of grace. And when that went by, the policy was canceled. Now, that's not the insurance company's fault. It was your fault. But it wasn't. I gave her the money. She spent it on herself. I'd have made it up. I told them so after she died. I told them, but they wouldn't listen. I'll show you. I'll show you. 
Yarbo looked like he was headed to show me the chopping end of an axe laying on top of a small table. I hit him just as he hit the table. As he hit the floor, I noticed what I was standing on. One of those big red roses in the carpet. It hadn't exploded yet, but that was one flower I wasn't standing around waiting to see bloom. took a lot of nerve picking up a telephone in that room. But I finally got a good hold on my nerves and a fair hold on an imitation of Yarbo's voice. Took one deep breath and picked up the phone. Yes? Hello, James. This is Martha. I'm at the office. I have good news. Two more. Mr. and Mrs. Granville Morse killed tonight on the Great Highway, two miles south of Seal Rock, 8.45 tonight. Ran into a post, both killed. Insured for a total of 80,000. I gotta go now. Goodbye, James. Well, congratulations, Brother Yarbo. Two more at 8.45 tonight. And who's your new alibi? Me. In just a moment, we'll return to the second act of Johnny Dollar. But first, did you ever think of and as a comedy word? Maybe not, but you'll get a full demonstration on CBS this Wednesday night. There'll be Groucho Marx and his guest on that hilarious quiz, You Bet Your Life. For it's the guests who sometimes floor Groucho with their wisecracks. There'll be Bing Crosby in his regular Wednesday night CBS show and his special guest, Bob Hope. There'll be George Burns and Gracie Allen and Bill Goodwin. And, and becomes more filled with comedy when you tell or learn that Lum and Abner will have their premiere as Wednesday night regulars on most of these same CBS stations. Yes, this fall, you hear them all on C and B and S. Now, with our star, Charles Russell, we return to the second act of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Yarbo might have been lying unconscious on the floor, but in that setting, I was still afraid of him. I'd have looked the place over with a fine tooth comb, only having none, I used my hands. I put the pat test to Yarbo's pockets for a gun. He was unloaded. Then turned my attention to the little black bag he'd been carrying when I saw him leave the house, and which he still had with him when he returned. I hoped it wasn't booby-trapped. Opened it, and discovered that it was a trap, the type my kind of booby stepped into. Inside the bag was a small radio receiver tuned to something I looked for and found in the room. A small radio transmitter of the type formerly used in army tanks. Through this, Yarbo had heard me enter his little museum of murder and had returned to catch me in the act of prowling the premises. About then, I caught him in the act of coming to. Well, welcome home, Yarbo. Time to get up. I just had a long chat on the phone with Martha. She thought I was you. You think you're very clever, don't you? Martha knows my voice. If she talked to you at all, she didn't tell you anything. Of that I am sure. So save your breath. There is no use your telling me she gave you any information. Oh, no, you got me wrong, pal. I only told you Martha called to let you know I know there is a Martha. I figured it might make you nervous. And nervous men are easy to beat. Other nervous men may be easy to beat, Dollar, but not James the Arbo. 
The police have tried and they couldn't prove a thing against me. Now, may I have your permission to get up? Yeah. Maybe the police haven't been able to get anything on you, but I have something. Attempted murder. The hatchet you went for. <laughs> the pitiful mistake of a pitifully suspicious mind, Dollar. I wasn't reaching for that hatchet on the table. I was trying to show you something in the table drawer. There it is, spilled out on the floor. My wife's insurance policy. The one your unscrupulous thieving superiors refused to pay. The vampires. Here, look at it. All in order. Much of it in fine print. Fine. Just fine. <laughs> okay, Yarbo, that did it. Come on, ahead of me. Uh, where are we going? To find some place to lock you up. I was hired to stop you, and until I do, I'm at least going to try and slow you down. Now move. Uh, Linen closet. No room here. Come on. Bathroom. No window. Yeah, this will do. Go on, get in there. No, 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 not in here. Anywhere but in here. It's a good place. You may get thirsty. No, no, no. This is where my wife died. Not in here. No. Which on the surface may seem to have been a move on the cruel side. But Yarbo was a man obviously off his rocker, and I needed him more nervous than I already had him. Too nervous to attempt killing any more people. Expense account item five, a nickel. Phone call, downtown office, state police. A Mr. and Mrs. Granville Morse had indeed crashed to their death on the great highway south of Seal Rock at 845, which made the lady with the early telephone news flash, Martha, a gal with whom I wanted an early date. Come on, come on, answer the phone. Hello? Uh, what is it? Hello, Mr. Coates. This is Dollar. Uh, oh, yes, Dollar. What do you want? Well, first I want to tell you that you just lost two more policyholders. List price, 80000 Oh, good Lord. This is terrible. Who, how, what... Never mind that. I've also got something else. On the good side, I need your help tonight. Uh, of course. Anything. What can I do? Meet me at your office. You and I are going to go looking for a dame named Martha. Martha? Martha who? I don't know but I hope she works for you. I'll be there in a half hour. Make that 20 minutes and you'll be 10 minutes closer to happy days. The office personnel records of the West Coast underwriters turned up not one, but three employees named Martha, which gave me three choices as to who had been supplying Yarbo with a list of West Coast policy, insurance, policy holders. Finding the exact Martha was even easier. On the phone, she had told me that she was calling from the office. And the night elevator operators in and out book showed the signature of one Martha Kinsey. And I just couldn't wait to hear her report. Who is it? I've got a message from Mr. Yarbo. Oh, just a minute. Message from James? Oh, what does he want? Well, what he really wants is to get out of the bathroom. That's where I've got him locked up. Who are you? You ought to know who I am. I assume you're the one that told Yarbo he could be expecting a call from an insurance investigator named Dollar. Well, that's me. Well, I don't care. 
James told me girls give out lists of names all the time, sell them for mailing lists, ten cents apiece. May not be ethical, but it's not against the law. James told me, and I believe James. Oh, he's the smartest man I ever knew. He may be the smartest, but he's right in line to be numbered among the deadest. One of these fine mornings, the state is going to give him a cyanide egg for breakfast. What do you mean? You should know. Murder, execution, gas chamber. Well, you can't prove a thing. James told me so, and he knows. But he's smart. I hope he's not smart enough to pick a lock with a bath mat. Now, come on, sit down. You and I are going to have a nice long talk. We are not. I won't say a thing. I don't have to unless you have a warrant, an indictment, and a court reporter. James told me so. Yeah, I know. He's smart. But no matter what he told you, you're going to tell me a few things. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. So I was wrong. Martha didn't tell me anything. But her stubborn attitude did. She was in love with Mr. Yarbo, a stupid middle-aged woman having her last fling at romance, doing her best to keep her last chance alive in the person of the man who had made her his partner in crime. As crazy as it was, this grotesque pair of lovebirds created the only real emotion in the case to date and switched my thoughts from the widely scattered deaths which had brought me into the case and over to the single death of Yarbo's wife, Enclosed, find a transcript of statement made to me at 2 o'clock in the morning by the doctor who signed Mrs. Yarbo's death certificate. Cause of death, cerebral hemorrhage, result of severe fracture of skull, region medulla oblongata, contributing factors, woman bathing in bathtub at home, slipped and fell, striking head on shower spigot. Coroner's finding death due to misadventure. Accidental. It took the doctor two minutes to get around to making that statement. I figured it would take Martha at least 30 minutes to get her hair out of her curlers and make herself presentable enough to risk being seen on the street. That left me 28 minutes to get back to Yarbo's house before she did. And I didn't need half that long. In the cab on my way over, I took inventory. One, to date, Yarbo's alibis covering him on all the so-called revenge murders had been perfect. Too perfect. Second, when I first faced Yarbo, he screamed about his wife's death, not in the light of having lost his lady love, but in the light of having lost her insurance money. Just as my third and most important conclusion came upon me, the taxi came upon our destination, and I had to go to work. Once inside the little horror house on Lombard Street, I got set for a long search. But it turned out to be a short one, and it proved two things. Yarbo was not only a murderer, he was as crazy as he'd acted, and having kept the evidence around... Okay, Yarbo, come on out. Well, I hope you have enjoyed your waste of time, Mr. Dollar, as I've enjoyed my chance for meditation. You saw Martha, I suppose? Yes, I saw Martha. Bless her silent little soul. Yes, I was sure of Martha. She believes in me. Uh, You can say that again. Come on out here. Mr. Dollar, I suppose you are aware that this is the second time tonight you've been guilty of breaking and entering. I am, however, willing to forgive that should you come to your senses and decide to go back to Hartford and leave me alone. Uh-uh. Oh. Mm. Um, mind treading on the roses in the rug, Mr. Dollar? Sorry, Yarbo. I fell for that gag earlier tonight. People who smile at that joke give me the last laugh. Now, look, Yarbo, I know exactly what you've been up to, and I know why you've done it. But your little war of nerves has got to stop. It will never stop. 
No one can prove anything against me. I can. I can prove that you haven't done a thing to bring about those accidental deaths you've been taking credit for. Martha has sat down that insurance office, office and notified you every time there's been an accidental death of a policyholder in this part of the country. Then you've written the company your little letters and gotten your little kicks out of it, right? That's a lie, lie, lie. This is a switch, a guy yelling that loud that he's guilty. You'll have to prove it. You will have to prove it. Don't worry, chum. I'm not going to waste a breath proving murders that you didn't commit. But, brother, I'm really going to go to town on the one that you did. Your wife, Mr. Yarbo. That is the most ridiculous statement you have yet made, young man. Look around you. Take note. I have profited by all the mistakes made by the original owners of these bloody souvenirs from Dr. Crippen on down. You see in me the living composite of them all. And I intend to stay that way. Alive. I'm afraid you will, but it's going to be inside an upholstered room. And this is what will put you there. Yeah, Mr. Yarbo, you carried your little hobby of crime souvenirs too far when you saved this hunk of pipe and the faucet with which you clubbed your wife to death. She slipped and fell. She was in the tub. I'm sure the police microscopes can give you a strong argument on that one. Now, come on. And let's make it easy on each other, shall we? No, no, I didn't do it. I, I didn't do it. Let go. Whoa. Let go of me. You, you have to prove it. What's he doing? Help me, Martha. Help me. Hit him with something. I'd have bet on myself against the two of them if I didn't have to fight while playing hopscotch over those roses in the carpet about which I still wasn't quite sure. It was touch and go. Martha would try to touch the back of my head with something, and I'd go. Do something, Martha! Do something! I'll fix him! I'll fix him! Something Martha tried to do was pick up a heavy-based urn and aim it at me. <sighs> she missed. It started to roll across the rosy carpet. When Yarbo saw where it was headed, he wrenched himself loose and dove to <laughs> it. I dove the other way. He got there just too late. <laughs> I didn't have to look twice to know he was dead. Fate had called James Yarbo up on his own carpet. When Martha threw that urn at me, it had rolled straight for the only rose in the rug that had been booby traps. Which only goes to prove that sometimes a rose by any other name can be anything but sweet. Expense account, item six. A dollar and 40 cents. Three months subscription, Love Life magazine. Sent to accessory to murder, Martha Kinsey, to Hatchaby State Prison. I figured three months was about all she had, the judges and juries in California being rather efficient that way. Expense account, uh, item seven. Six bucks. Dinner and diving for pearls in a barrel of blue points at Fisherman's Wharf. Diving for Pearl's earring, which she lost while bending over the barrel trying to see what oysters looked like. Uh, item eight, $176.87. Airfare, San Francisco to Hartford. Uh, expense account total, $942.08. Not including defense lawyer fees if you decide to sue me for not being able to add correctly. Signed, yours, uh... Truly, Johnny Dollar.
Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, is produced and directed by Gordon T. Hughes and stars Charles Russell. Script by Paul Dudley and Gil Dowd. Featured in the cast were Jay Novello, Martha Wentworth, Paul Dubois, Gigi Pearson, and Larry Dobkin. The special music is written and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. And now... Another mystery on Mystery Radio XXX. Whitehall, one, two, one, two. Hurry. This is Scotland Yard. For the first time, Scotland Yard opens its secret files to bring you the authentic true stories of some of its most baffling cases. These records are drawn from the Scotland Yard files, and only the names of the participants have been changed. The research has been prepared by Mr. Percy Hoskins, chief crime reporter for the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Mr. Willis Cooper. Here are the principal participants in Scotland Yard case number 397-MR381. Stanley Russell, shop clerk. Mr. Russell is not to be found. Mrs. Hope Russell, his wife. Mrs. Russell was reported missing on the day before Good Friday. Adolf Hitler's Luftwaffe. Chief Inspector Bryce Purcell of Scotland Yard. I should like to introduce Deputy Commander William Byrd of Scotland Yard, my superior officer. Before we proceed, I believe it would be a good idea to visit the Black Museum. Come along with me, if you please. After you, sir. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon, sir. This is Chief Superintendent John Davidson, curator of Scotland Yard's Black Museum. Well, how do you do? You came about case number 397-MR-381, I believe you said, sir. Right. Will you tell us about it, John? Well, this is the exhibit. No, don't touch it, please. It's quite fragile. And as you can see, it has already been broken. We have a great many other exhibits of crimes in these rooms. Murder weapons. Bloodstained garments. Bullets that have snuffed out many lives. Death masks and many notorious criminals. Almost every um, instrument of violence that can be conceived. I should explain that these gruesome objects about us are not merely souvenirs. Many of them have aided our men in solving other crimes and bringing the perpetrators to justice. Now, this one... Tell us what this thing is, John. This is Mrs. Hope Russell. Sixteen months after the Easter Blitz of 1941, the work of clearing out bombed-out areas of London was still progressing. On the 12th July 1942, the Scotland Yard Information Room received an urgent call from P.C. John Dunn of the Kennington District. A patrol car in which Chief Inspector Purcell was riding was dispatched to the scene, a partially destroyed Baptist chapel. 
I was directed to the spot by P.C. Dunn, who was on point duty at the road intersection. Right over there, sir, where you see the men standing. They found some it, sir. The navvies that's working here. Right, thank you. Morning, boys. Morning. What have you found? Who are you, mate? I'm Chief Inspector Purcell, Scotland Yard. What's up? Down, sir. Down there. In that hole, sir. Yeah. It's an old burying wall, sir. But what is it? A skeleton, sir. He's dead. Up down, Georgie and Sean, with your torch. All right. There you see, sir. Here he is. Stand to one side, will you? He's off under this stone slab, sir. I'll see. I see him. Well, what's so strange about a skeleton in a burial vault? There ain't been anybody in there since 1934, sir. 1935. Uh, I was in that gang that moved the old corpses out of here, Herbert. It was 1934. We didn't leave a one. God bless you. It's the quicklime down here, sir. Quicklime? How'd, how'd quicklime get down there? You're the detective, mister. We just work here. The badly burned skeleton was removed to the pathological laboratories at Scotland Yard, together with the other articles found in the vault. A considerable amount of quicklime and a half-burned straw pellius which had partially covered the remains. There was nothing else. I stood beside Keith Briggs, the home office pathologist, while he completed his examination. What do you think, Keith? I asked. Well, she's dead. She? Oh, it's a woman, all right. No question about that. The hip bones are characteristically a woman's. So is the sacrum here. And uh, How old a woman? Oh, middle-aged, I'd say. The bones are fully developed, mm-hmm. so we know she was full-grown. And there were one or two strands of long gray hair adhering to the skull. Here they are. And then the teeth here. What about them? Well, you see, they're pretty well worn. Now, you see here, in the upper jaw, mm-hmm. seven of the uppers are missing. Oh. See these ridges? Yes. Well, they were caused by a dental plate, which probably consisted of seven teeth, and then... Uh, what are you looking for? The, the measuring tape. Oh, here. The lady was lying on it. What are you going to do now? See how tall she was. She's rather jumbled about. And the the feet, where are they? Oh, the thigh bone's all I need. Oh, hold it, please, huh? This one. Now, let's see. Let's see. uh, uh, 43 centimeters. Now, that's all right, sir. Now, 43 centimeters multiplied by 3.6. What are you doing? A sediment scale. You multiply the length of the thigh bone by 3.6. Man's is 3.7. And you get the exact height. Now, see, that's uh, 154.8 centimeters. We'll call it 1 meter 55. Uh, meters 39.37 and 55 hundredths of 39.37 is 21.65. Now, 39.37 plus 21.65, that's uh, 7, 5, 12, 6, 9, 10, 9, 10, 9, 3, 5, 6, 61.02 inches. There. She was 5 feet 1 and 200 inches tall. In a word, 5 foot 1. What was her name? Whatever her name, sir, she was murdered. Consider that I've asked the question. Eh? Oh, 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 how do I know? Well, this bone here. Where does it fit? This is what she talked with. 
It's the voice box, the trachea, you know, the throat. Look. See these little wing things up here? Mm-hmm. Oh, you see this one? See, it's broken. Well? well? This is one of the most significant fractures in all forensic medicine, sir. Why? There's only one way to do it. Oh, come on, man. Don't come Sherlock Holmes on me. How do you do it? Well, I was about to say by manual pressure on the throat, sir. Strangulation, you mean? Intentional strangulation, sir. There's no other way. And then there's the quicklime. <laughs> Surely you know that quicklime will not destroy a body, sir. Yes, I know it, Keith. But murderers seldom do. Reference to the ARP records showed that every other casualty and missing persons in Kennington had been accounted for. It was apparent that the victim had not been a resident of that district. I caused bulletins and charts of the teeth to be sent to all the dentists in London for identification. No results were forthcoming, and we were forced to conclude that the dentist in question had become an air raid casualty, or that the work had been done in some other city. I gave Purcell a very difficult assignment. Difficult, sir? Well, it's not so difficult, but it's tedious. It'll take a long time. I know, but it's got to be done. I'm strongly of the opinion that it was murder. We checked carefully, sir, and the the only quicklime on the entire premises was that in the vault with the skeleton. I thought they might have dusted the entire place with quicklime for sanitary purposes, but they hadn't. Certainly looks as if someone had wanted to dispose of a body. Until we know who she was, we'll never discover who he is. Ah, yes, sir. Well, I'll get cracking. I'll need men to go over the missing persons rushes, sir, to find the names and addresses. Every woman five feet tall, of middle age with gray hair, who is still missing now. And then I'll need more men to make inquiries of all the next of kin to see which of them wore false teeth. And to find out which one wore an upper plate that matches the one in Briggs's chart here. Mm. It'll take a good many men and a good bit of time, sir. You can get the men, Purcell, and we've got the time. Good luck. Oh, thank you, sir. Nothing whatever happened for two weeks except for the unrewarded activities of Purcell's men. I had a minor inspiration about the seventh day. Put me through to Sergeant Bowles, please. Commander Baird here, Sergeant. I should like you to send me all the file copies of the Metro operations for the period two weeks before to two weeks after the Easter Blitz of last year, please. Yes, at once, if you please. The Metropolitan Informations is a daily newspaper containing digests of all the crime news. It is usually invaluable. I pored over every issue, looking assiduously for an item that might prove of some help. I had reached the end of the first week after the date the Kennington Chapel was destroyed with no results whatever when Purcell reported. Found, sir. Oh, good. Here. Here is the missing plate. It's much better than I'd hoped for, Purcell. Apparently the plate hurt her mouth. She often left it at home. As a matter of fact, I found it at her sister's. Oh? I stopped upstairs to see Keith Briggs in the laboratory, and they fit exactly, allowing for the fact that there's no flesh on the jawbones. Ah, here's Keith. Oh, that right, Keith? That's right, sir. And the marks on the skeleton's teeth coincide exactly with these little clamps here. I've uh, brought the skull down. Yeah. You see, sir? Oh, she looks very fine. Congratulations, Purcell. Thank you, sir. The only thing is, uh, she was reported missing 
three days before the raid that destroyed the chapel. She was. It's in all the records, sir. Where were you, madame? Mm, she might have been hidden in the vault. Immediately she was murdered, sir. And then the fire, when the place was bombed... It must have been quite a hot fire. Let's see. The Kennington Fire Brigade, please. Yes. Oh, what's her name, Purcell? Mrs. Hope Russell. Russell. Hope Russell, did you say... Oh, hello. Is that the Kennington Fire Brigade? The senior company officer, if you please. I'll wait. Hope Russell. I've run across that name somewhere. Yes? Thank you. Hello, this is Commander Bird at Scotland Yard. Do you remember during the Easter Blitz last year when the Baptist Chapel was destroyed there in Kennington? What I wanted to know was that a very severe fire... What? There was no fire. What? No fire, whatever, when the chapel was destroyed. Oh, two days later. Hmm, how very curious. It was reported by whom? The Kennington police. Or wasn't there a... Oh, look here, old chap. I'm sending it once for their divisional superintendent. Could you possibly come along with him to my office at the yard? Yes. I'm afraid it is rather important. I'll have him pick you up in his car. Thank you so much. At once, yes. No fire. Keith, would you mind? Get him in the fire chap over here at once. Use my name. Ask them both to bring their records for that night. Please. All right, sir. Huh. No fire, eh? What's that woman's name, Purcell? Mrs. Hope Russell. I knew I remembered it. Look at this. Metro Informations, eh? Look under articles lost and found. I was just reading it. <sighs> lost and found. Here, the, the third item. Read that. Found by postmistress Guilford Surrey in the post office yesterday, a woman's purse. Black leather, plain, a strap. Contents, lipstick, comb, mirror, two London tram tickets, 11pence in coin, ration book, identity card, issued to Mrs. Hope Russell. Well... What was she doing in Guildford? Look at the date of the paper, Purcell. April? What was she doing in Guildford three days after the air raid in Kennington? The divisional superintendent and the fire brigade officer from Kennington sat in my office with Purcell and me. I looked at the fire brigade records first. Now, here, sir, this is the day of the big raid when the chapel was destroyed. Good Friday evening, 11th of April, 1941. Yes. Every call is set down in the occurrence book here, sir. Yes, I know. Together with all the calls to the auxiliary fire service, the civilians, sir. Yes, I know. And you can see there's no report whatever of a fire at the Kennington Baptist Chapel from either source. Right. But over here, sir, on this page, Tuesday the 15th, four days later... 11 o'clock p.m. You see, sir? Mm -hmm. Chapel and so forth. Report telephoned in by Kennington Police Station. Do your records correspond, Superintendent? I'll read it to you, sir. 10.57 p.m. Tuesday, 15th of April. P.C. Allison telephoned to report a fire at the ruins of the Baptist Chapel. Alarm telephoned to Kennington Fire Brigade at 11 p.m. Your anger's up yourself, Robert. I did that indeed. Here's my initials. What do you think, Percival? 
Why did the police constable report it? Yes, I was just going to ask that. I don't understand, sir. Wasn't there a fire watcher? Uh, <laughs> wasn't there? Well, sir, there was a fire watcher. There was supposed to be. Well, where was he? Asleep, sir, probably. Or out catching a drink somewhere. Not an ARP man. No, sir. A private man employed by the wholesale chemists across the road from the chapel. A thoroughly useless man. Completely undependable. His employers caught up with him at last, sir. He was sacked six or seven weeks ago. I've not seen him since. Neither have I. Well, sounds like a spiff to me. He is, sir. I knew him quite well. Had a great deal of trouble with his wife, and I used to see him quite regularly. Oh. He agreed to pay in 18 shillings and ninepence, I, I think it was, weekly, at the police station for her, which he didn't ever do. Oh, not ever. Never once till Easter Monday last year, right after the big raid. He kept it up, too, till he was discharged and left. I suppose this chemical firm he worked for could put us on to him. I'd like to have a chat with the fellow. Wouldn't you, Purcell? I certainly would. I'll telephone them now and ask them if you'll give me the name of the firm and his name. Oh, his name is Stanley Russell. Russell? I wonder if you'd know his wife's name, Superintendent. I've seen it often enough. Yes, yes, sir. His name, uh, her name is uh, Mrs. Hope Russell. In the Pirates of Penzance, Gilbert and Sullivan complain bitterly that a policeman's lot is not a happy one. I subscribe most heartily to that sentiment. I would like you to hear Chief Inspector Purcell's report to me, just as he gave it, in my office. Well, Purcell, I said, did you find our Mr. Stanley Russell all right? Uh, not there. Well, you've left men to wait for him, haven't you? Sir, I got the address of the place. Sergeant Hatton and I drove there in a yard car driven by Constable oh, Small. Oh, get on with it, man. The whole bloody place was gone, sir. Gone? The whole bloody block was destroyed. Destroyed by an enemy bomb in an air raid six months ago. One day after Russell moved in. Not one person in the whole building's been heard of since. Oh, sir, I respectfully request permission to go somewhere and get howling drunk. You know, Purcell, I think I'll go with you. <laughs> But we didn't. We sat quietly in Commander Bird's office and thought long, dark thoughts. After a while, Keith Briggs, the pathologist, observing the light inside, stopped by, and almost at the same time, John Davidson from the Black Museum came in to see what was up. <laughs> Nothing's up, John, I said. On the contrary. What happened? Purcell was just telling Keith here. The chap is a blitz casualty. Did? And may God have mercy on his soul. Hmm. I'd rather hope to hear a bloke in a black cap say that, Keith. I thought we had him. Dead to rights. Oh, don't be so bloody American. I think we could have proved it. He strangled her, then hid her body in the vault. Took a handbag to Guilford and lost it in the post office there. Cleverly putting Scotland Yard off the scent. Timing was a little bad. And then when the Blitz came... Tried quicklime first. Didn't work. Blitz came... He set her afire. If, if he'd been a better fire watcher and not hiding in a hole somewhere, he'd have known there was no fire that night. Oh, but he wasn't a good fire watcher. He wasn't good at anything. I wonder. I wonder uh, what, John? What do you mean, John? 
Well, if I'd strangled my wife and burned her up, which God forbid, because I haven't one, (laughs) I'd be very happy to have people think I was dead. If I'd hear that my home was destroyed and everybody in it dead, I should be delighted, most delighted. I'd change my name. Not in wartime, you wouldn't. That's right. Identity cards, ration books. Absolutely. I'd forgotten. Getting new ones in the name of Harry Hawkins or Sam Small (laughs) would be difficult. But even Scotland Yard would stop looking for me if they thought I was dead. Wouldn't they, Commander Bird? And you'd go around buying new clothing and whatnot, if you could, and presenting your own ration book in your own name, and... Where are you going, Purcell? I'm going to stagger home through the blackout, sir, with your permission. I've a large number of men's clothing stores to interview beginning tomorrow, and I'd like to get a good night's sleep. Good night, all. The Stanley Russell crop was enormous. Chief Inspector Purcell discovered that 200... Let me see. 234 of them had purchased clothing since the date our Stanley Russell had been reported dead by enemy action. But not one of them was the Stanley Russell we wanted. We made thorough inquiries of all his known acquaintances, all to no avail. The war office had no record of our man. We were reluctantly forced to the conclusion that he was dead, or that he had heard of our search for him and gone to ground most effectively, as I said to a rather haggard Purcell. Purcell shook his head. Ah, I'd like to keep on looking, sir, if I may. I have a hunch that he'll turn up unexpectedly. It will certainly be unexpected so far as I'm concerned. I'd like to keep on trying, sir. Well, for a few weeks more, but I'm afraid... Commander Bird speaking. Yes, he's here. It's for you, Purcell. Well, I'll I'll take it outside, sir. No, don't. Take it here. Thank you, sir. Chief Inspector Purcell here. Who is he? Oh? Well, I, I, I don't know him personally, but I know of him. Yes. Will you ask him to wait a moment? I'll ring you back. Sir. Yeah? I've never been so shocked in all my life. Oh, really? What's happened? Somebody dead? Somebody's alive. What? I'd heard this on the radio, I wouldn't have believed it. Well, what's happened? Mr. Stanley Russell is calling on us. Well, Brother Purcell, let him enter and be received in due form. (laughs) Will you show Mr. Stanley Russell in, please? Thank you. (laughs) You sound like a spider, Purcell. Thank you, sir. I feel I am. And a chair for our guest. You think I sound like a spider? Come in. Mr. Stanley Russell, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. I I was looking for Inspector Purcell. Come in, sir. I'm Chief Inspector Purcell. How do you do, sir? This is Commander Bird. Good morning. Good morning, sir. May I sit down? Thank you. Does one smoke in here? Yes, by all means. Will you... Will you try an Abdullah? Tar, I'm afraid I always smoke woodbines. <sighs> now, I hear Scotland Yard is looking for me. That's uh, <clears throat> that's true. 
Why, may I ask? You have been extremely hard to find. Oh, I've been in the country. Derbyshire. We should have come there eventually. Oh, I've saved you the trouble. What do you want to see me about? You were a fire watcher, Mr. Russell, in Kennington. Yes. There was an unreported fire at the Baptist Chapel there whilst you were on duty. When? Two nights after the raid that destroyed the chapel. I didn't see any fire. Is that all you wanted? No, Mr. Russell. Well, I don't recall any fire, sir. You didn't see or hear the fire brigade? No, sir. Here at 11 o'clock? Oh. Well, <laughs> I must admit I wasn't there. Where were you? I did see the fire brigade moving away when I came back, but... Where were you? Oh, I was out of cigarettes, and I strolled around the corner to see if I could borrow one or two from the fire watcher at post four. He says he never saw you, Mr. Russell. Oh, he's probably forgotten. It's a long time ago. He will swear he didn't see you that night. Well, the fire obviously didn't do any damage. A woman was burned to death in it. Murdered? Do you know anything about her? Of course not. I, I'm very sorry to hear that anything like that... The woman was your wife. May I have one of your cigarettes, please? Thanks. So that's what became of her. Do you know anything about it? I'm afraid I must disappoint you, gentlemen. I wasn't on very good terms with her. We know that. I'm afraid I have no tears for her. She was... Oh, well, she's dead. No, I shan't say anything. Naturally, I'm shocked. Naturally. But I'm afraid I'm not sorry. Do you know anyone who would have had a motive for murdering her? <laughs> you had a motive, didn't you, Mr. Russell? <laughs> I can see how you might think so, but I didn't murder her, I assure you. When did you last see her? I don't really remember. Several months before she was murdered, I think. How do you know she was murdered? Why, well, you said so. Did I? Oh, I would have had good cause to, Inspector, but I'd have been a fool to do it now, wouldn't I? Yes. Well, Mr. Russell, thank you for coming to see us. If there is anything else you remember, please come back and see us again. I think that's all for now. How can we find you if we need you? We may want your corroboration of certain facts. Well, I'll write down my address, sir. It's a sad affair, and you have our sympathy. Thank you, sir. I admit I'm terribly shocked. Of course. Well, here's the address and telephone number, sir. Thank you. Feel free to call on us at any time. Goodbye. Well, good Goodbye, gentlemen. I was merely trying to do my duty. Oh, you've done it admirably, sir. Goodbye. Well, thank you. Well, he's a liar. I know it. May I ask why you... Why I let him go? <laughs> he thinks he's got us completely fooled. He'll be back with more helpful information. Come in, Mr. Russell. Uh, I, I just remembered <laughs> yeah. something that might be of importance. Uh, come in. I remembered that an old straw pelleus, uh, a mattress I used to catch 40 winks on... It was stolen about that time. Mm -hmm. Could that have been used to stop the fire? Did you find it? Yes, we found it. Oh, that's good. Well, I, I must go now. Oh, by the way, 
Was the body destroyed? By the quicklime? Yes. What's the matter? You are a very clever man, Mr. Russell. Much too clever for your own good. Why? Why, may I ask? No one had mentioned quicklime except you. Well, I thought... I mean... I, I didn't... I wasn't even there. I, I tell you, I didn't touch her. I said you were much too clever for your own good. You... You think I... I didn't strangle her? Go ahead, Chief Inspector. Stand no! Russell, I arrest you on the charge of willful no, murder. I didn't do it. And I, I warn you that whatever you no, say will be taken no. down in writing and may be given in evidence. The crime. The painstaking evidence Scotland Yard had collected, together with Stanley Russell's own statements, were sufficient to convince a jury that he had murdered his wife, Hope Russell, and burned her body. All his allegations of misconduct on her part were proved completely false. It was demonstrated at the trial that he had planned the murder for a long time, and having found a convenient time and place, had committed it. The verdict. My lord, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty of willful murder. The sentence. Prisoner at the bar. Stand up. It is the sentence of this court that you be hanged by the neck until dead. And may God have mercy on your soul. You have heard the true story of case number 397MR381 from the files of Scotland Yard. The names of the participants have, for obvious reasons, been changed. Starting next week, Whitehall 1212 will be heard at a new time, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Research by Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express, stories for radio written and directed by Willis Cooper. Next, listen for Tales of the Texas Rangers on NBC. Join us again next time on Mystery Radio X. X.